Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thanksgivings episode of the Thinklings Podcast. Probably my favorite title that we use for any episode is Thanksgivings. And uh, we came up with that three years ago. It's quality. This is like our third Thanksgivings. Yeah. Thanksgivings number three. And so here's what we're going to do in this Thanksgivings slash Thanksgiving themed episode. We are going to do that thing that we always do. And then after that, we're going to go around the, the table, the triangle. I was going to say circle, but there's three of us. So it's a triangle. Um we're going to go around the triangle around the table and we're going to share what spiritual ideas or scripture passages we think of when we think of Thanksgiving. We, we posed this like a week or two back. I can't remember when that was. And uh, we're like, just talk about what you think of when you think of Thanksgiving. So we're going to go around the, the triangle and do that. But before we do that, we have some thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books and I can go first. So I've got this book here. I think I've mentioned this before. Tim, you might've even brought this up before in books and business. Maybe. Oh yeah. Here, my son teaching and learning in Proverbs one through nine. And I've been interacting with this in one of my classes, discipleship of youth and kind of the idea that it's there is, you know, when you work with teenagers, you do want to progress them from immaturity to maturity. So teach them and guide them in wisdom. And uh, I don't actually know if it's in this, it's not in this book. It's in The Art of Teaching by Gilbert Hyatt. He talks about uh, there are bridges, to, uh, two bridges that every teacher must make. And so when you think teacher, think discipler. The first is you have to bridge your content to real life. So you you have to tell or demonstrate why what you're teaching is relevant to them. And I don't like that right away because it's like, oh, just make it relevant, you know, and that can mean like interesting or fun or entertaining, but understanding the practical value of what you're learning. And he, uh, Hyatt in The Art of Teaching, like talks about like the practicality of math, which a young person doesn't understand, but how would logical thinking help you for the rest of your life? You know, like that type of a discussion. So that was the first bridge. And then the second bridge that every teacher must build for a student is the bridge from immaturity to maturity. Like you, you are always as an educator trying to teach wisdom or you should be. And I really like that in Hyatt. And so that's why I wanted to assign a book about wisdom and thinking through what Proverbs says about wisdom for young people in a class, Discipleship of Youth. And I'm going to see if I can find an area that I was going to read from. See if I can find, yeah, here we go. So I'm going to read a paragraph. This is chapter three, Goals for Education. And this is the third paragraph on that page. It's page 63 if you want to get a copy and look directly at what I'm referencing. So he says, It is evident that the transmission of knowledge from one generation to the next is an integral part of what education is seeking to accomplish. And I teach a handful of discipleship classes at Faith, meaning that discipleship is in the title. So like discipleship of children, discipleship of youth, discipleship of adults, administering local church discipleship. And in every one of those classes, I define 
discipleship with two facets. Discipleship is knowledge acquisition, and it is character transformation. You, you have to have knowledge. You have to. Like, you're, you're teaching. There's content being transmitted, and that's what he just said. Transmission of knowledge is an integral part of what education is seeking to accomplish. But that is not all that education is trying to accomplish, especially in the worldview of Proverbs. It's trying to make you a certain person. So he continues, Knowledge, however, is not viewed as an end in itself, but is only the foundation for more significant goals such as understanding and application. Facts gleaned from personal observation and from tradition are important means to the greater outcomes that the teacher endeavors to achieve. What is paramount is moral behavior, not the knowledge that is its substratum. And so the knowledge that we're trying to transmit is not the end goal. The end goal is a legitimate change of character, character transformation. And so I, I really like that dichotomy when you think through what wisdom is. There is instruction, but there is character transma- transformation happening. So uh, here, my son, I'm, I, I had never read it. And then uh, I'm reading through it with my students currently, and I'm really enjoying it. So I, I think I'll give it a preliminary, like, five slash six on the goodness scale. I really like that book. It's as far as Proverbs stuff goes, that's a really good one. Have you read it? Yeah, I've, I've read, uh, I think I've gotten through chunks here and there in prepping yeah. for my Proverbs class, but I, mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. Cool. I haven't read like a lot of it. I've read some of it and I've talked about it, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah. Okay. So my book is uh, texts of terror by, um, uh, Tribble, I guess I should pull it up here. Phyllis Tribble, Texts of Terror: Literary Feminist Readings of Biblical Narratives. So Tribble goes through four uh, Old Testament narratives. Uh, she examines four women. Understand that Tribble is one of the leading feminist hermeneutic authors from the seventies. Uh, her her writings have been filtering down into evangelical uh, writings recently, and so that's one of the reasons why I'm reading some of her older stuff again. But uh, she analyzes the life of Hagar and then uh, Tamar. So David, he had all of his children. He had Amnon. He had Absalom. Absalom had a sister. Her name was Tamar. There's that really unsavory story uh, in Samuel about that. Anyway, so that Tamar. There's a couple Tamars, and that's the one. I thought she was going to talk about the other Tamar, like Judah and Tamar, but she didn't. And then she talks about Genesis 19. There's that um, unsavory story about the concubine of the Levite. Uh, so anyway, I'm not going to go through all of all of the the um, all of these different things. But what I do want to just highlight is how she's kind of structured the book. She connects it actually to Isaiah 53. So as we think through the suffering servant, and we think through um, Jesus the Messiah and the suffering that he endured, she applies that uh, using a feminist hermeneutic to these various women who are taken advantage of by um, the men and the women. So for example, with uh, Hagar, uh, she she has um, for Hagar, Egyptian slave woman. She was wounded for our transgressions. She was buried for our, or bruised for our iniquities. 
And so throughout the book, she applies Isaiah 53 to these various women. And using the feminist hermeneutic, she actually sees a very uh, victim mentality to Hagar. Uh, she's taken advantage of by uh, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, so she incriminates both of them. I mean, Sarah didn't treat her nicely. That's uh, without question. Um, but she really looks at the text just from that specific character's per, um, perspective. So uh, she has this one quote, In the hand of Sarai, with the consent of Abraham, Hagar becomes the suffering servant, the precursor of Israel's plight under Pharaoh. Yet no deity comes to deliver her from bondage and oppression, nor does she beseech one. Instead, this tortured female claims her own exodus. Sarai afflicted her, and so she fled from her, even as Israel will later flee from Pharaoh. So um, Tribble sees like some irony between the Exodus narrative where Israel is the slave and they're fleeing out of Exodus or out of Egypt. And then Hagar, who's an Egyptian and she's enslaved uh, to the Israelites and she builds that whole analogy. Um, so most people, when they read through the Abram and Sarai stories, they're not really reading from this perspective. Yeah, that's that's correct, because that's not actually the right perspective to even read it from. Um, I would encourage you to read the text and read it from a God-centered perspective and Hagar's uh, situation and how miserable and bad it really was. Um, but at the same time, how God is actually a faithful God through it all. So there's a bunch of stuff that I could talk about. I'm not going to go through a lot of it, but just she she has these reflections. Read in light of contemporary issues and images, her story depicts oppression in the free familiar forms, nationality, class, and sex. Uh, later on, and a little bit later, she states, The Egyptian slave woman is stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted for the transgression of Israel. She is bruised for the iniquities of Sarah and Abraham. Upon her is the chastisement that makes them whole. So that's uh, just a little bit of a feminist interpretation of the Abram and Sarai story. Um, she continues to two other stories. I want to just kind of highlight the connection to Isaiah 53 that she makes. So with Tamar, uh, Tamar, the princess of Judah, she is a woman of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's the correlation that she creates. And then the third one, I'm not going to, I didn't tag the fourth one, so we won't go to it. But the third one, the unnamed woman, the concubine from Bethlehem, her body was broken and given to many, which is kind of wrong considering what happened yeah. to her. So anyway, um, Texts of Terror, I'm not going to recommend it or put it on the, thing, on the uh, goodness scale. So it goes. I'm going to put it on the shack stack. Can we get a ceremonial slap of the table? There it is. Ooh, that was loud. That we was both really did at the same time. <laughs> like, Tim no. and I literally both hit his desk at the same time. I didn't What's hit the name of the as book? hard as you. Texts of Terror by Phyllis Tribble. And you'll be terrified by the content and the loud slap that you just heard. If you want an introduction to feminist hermeneutics, then this would be a good one for you. That's a, that's a warning to all of you out there who want to write poor books. We're going we're gonna to slap the table. Gonna slap him on that shack stack. My hand actually hurts a lot. I think I got too into that. that so it's, that hurt is metaphorical for the souls of those who <laughs> read that book. So it's interesting to me, and then I'll get to my book. When I took um, Theologians of the 20th Century with Kevin Bowder at Central in 2011, he had us read James Cone's Black Theology, 
Gustavo Gutierrez's anthology on liberation theology, and then Rosemary Rutherford Rather's Sex and God Talk. And what was interesting is all three of those were, were using a hermeneutic based on their situations like a feminist, a black, or a, a, like a liberation hermeneutic. And what I thought was interesting is that, I, I don't know maybe, I don't know how close you had to read that, but to me, it, it, they'll, they'll have reasons to justify why they're going to use this lens, but none of them came off as any other than, any, anything more than just basically an eeny, meeny, miny, mo. this is what I pick. And I know that she, I'm sure she has reasons, but they're, they're, all of those are predicated on the text being a myth and not true. Mm-hmm. If it's really true, then you can't do that kind of stuff. And right. so it's interesting when you read those kinds of hermeneutics, you have to sort of assume a baseline postmodern relativism, I would right. say. God, so, you know what's interesting? Like what, what kind of, like, it just, it fascinates me pose it as a question is why does someone who knows they disagree with what it says at face value have such a pull to find meaning in the document that they know they disagree with at face value? Like what is it in them that is so compelled to reinterpret? It's almost like, like they're taking it and trying to suppress the real meaning. Maybe like, I don't know. Or like, well, they, that's, I mean, I could give a when I'm just. What do you think? <laughs> they see it as a patriarchal document. It was a patriarchal yeah. con- mm-hmm. context. It was a patriarchal um, setting of life. So what they're trying to do is deconstruct it. What was really going on in the life of, say, like a Hagar? And unfortunately, what that ends up doing is that it makes God just a small G God that's a nobody and very insignificant and irrelevant. So like, they like through this deconstruction, they repurpose and repackage a different authority. But so but there is still this like looking to the Bible in a very mm-hmm. different approach they, as an authoritative document, and not they, because of what it says, but because of what they say and use it as evidence for. Yeah, right? but at the same time, they in their deconstruction and then reconstruction, they then do see an application. Yeah, uh, for contemporary people. And actually with the deconstruction, you go back to Nietzsche, he he was all about the will to power. That's yep. like what everything is. So I think part of it, you like, especially for liberation, you're deconstructing it. I don't know if they'd say that. And you're reviewing it as like the main point being liberation. Mm-hmm. And I think what that does is it's shifting the power in yeah. favor of their group or their mm-hmm. aims. I don't know that they would say that's why they're doing it. But with the patriarchy, I could see them saying this but- document gives power and we need to give power do, back to women. Do you think it would be more logically consistent, though, for someone to just say, and of course, I would, you know, I'm asking a rhetorical question, leading a witness, you know, like, I think it would be more logically consistent for them to just read it at face value and be like, I disagree with that. You shouldn't go to it for meaning. And then write their own, like, you know, why do they have to, in this weird hermeneutical process, still find meaning from that document? Well, that's what rather does but carry on tim well with tribble you know she 
is she's not an idiot and she knows Hebrew very well. And so she'll provide some exegetical arguments for her interpretations. It's just, it's very devoid of a God that's in control and sovereign overall. That's the big missing component, like mm. in the Hagar story. Now in the Tamar story, I, her exegesis, I actually learned several things. I mean, and I got to be careful because I know her hermeneutic and where she's coming from, but she brought several correspondences out in that passage that I hadn't seen before. So I actually found that narrative. It's so fascinating. Very interesting and helpful. The issue there is the characterization. And that's why understanding the role of characters when somebody's telling a story, Tamar is not the main character of that story. Yeah. And she's making her the main character. So then her applications and what she's seeking to le learn and teach from the text are going in the wrong direction. So um, anyway, the the it's not completely like worthless and that's where you know slapping it on the shack stack and all of that i do think it deserves to go there but if you want to see like a feminist hermeneutic at play boom she's one of the one you can see how she's yeah. interpreting the text and how it has a how it creates a very impotent god who breaks his promises literally that's what she says god changes the promise that's supposed to go to hagar and gives it to sarai after uh, Isaac is born and God breaks his promise. Hmm. So it's a very small Just G God. One last quick comment. And it shouldn't surprise us that someone with a very modern way of thinking, as opposed to a pre-modern way of thinking would have an interpretation devoid of a powerful sovereign God. God yeah. Because that is what was ditched mm -hmm. as we moved through the enlightenment mm -hmm. to modernity. And feminists, uh, the feminist hermeneutic is very often it, it looks at the text from uh, a very anachronistic perspective. For example, uh, Hagar is a victim in that she's a slave. She's this concubine, this inferior status woman, so on and so forth. Most concubines, the concubines back in those days usually wanted to be in that kind of a situation because their life was actually usually an improvement. So she's making Hagar out to be this victim that Hagar was not. Okay, it's an anachronistic reading of the text. So anyway, that's just another fault. So for this week, I'm going to recommend a systematic theology trilogy. Right now I'm doing some research uh, into a topic. And so I'm going through a number of systematic theology. So next couple books and businesses, I might just give blanket uh, descriptions of systematics I'm using. So this one is just Roland McCune's systematic theology. It's a three volume set. I'm not giving it because it's like the best. I'm just, that's the one I was reading today. Um, he is, uh, he taught for a long time out at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, this book is used in uh, some of Dr. Cole's doctrine classes, I think. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's, I'm not sure which ones if he uses all three. But it is uh, pretty easy to follow. I think it's a pretty helpful resource. I was reading on General Revelation today, and uh, it was interesting. He said that, uh, he said, Revelation is the communication of previously unknown facts and ideas about God and his purposes. That is to say, to be known, God must reveal himself. And I put a note there because I'm reading this in Lagos, and I, th I thought to myself, I wonder if he's taking the position that no one can know anything about God unless God reveals it. The very next sentence God is unable to be discovered from below. Revelation is always from the top down. I click on the footnote and he quotes Greg Bonson. Uh, Greg Bonson is obviously a very reformed and very down that side of the thing. Now, if you're following theology today, there's a big hubbub out there right now with Thomas Aquinas and natural theology and how much you can know about God apart from the Bible. And so anyways, uh, I'm not anywhere 
uh, anywhere in my study where I would have any info for you. Uh, but I thought this was helpful. And if you don't have any theologies on your shelf, this is what I was thinking. Listener, if you don't have any theology resources, this three volume would be an okay one to have on the shelf. Um, there's probably like one that's a little simpler you could get, and there's some more standard ones, but this one has a lot of good to it. So Roland McCune, Systematic Theology, Volumes 1 through 3. And, and I'm not going to rate it. I'm not going to rank it because it's more of a resource. And so I would just say it's a recommendation. So yeah. it's not on the goodness scale, but I recommend it as a resource. I like that, I, I, I like that you're going to, I'm assuming you're going to, you said yeah, you're going to continue. I'm in the middle of a project, so there's probably going to be a lot of systematic I, I like the idea of like a, a, a theology books and business <clears throat> kind of flavor yeah. of mm -hmm. having, like, and uh, it, it does, it did surprise me as a pastor how few members of our congregation actually owned what I would consider an orthodox theology book, like intended to teach systematic or biblical theology that I would recommend. Mm -hmm. And so cue into that listener. That's a good thing. You know, be a great Christmas gift. Oh yeah. Right. You know what I'm saying? You could just waltz on over to the faith bookstore or virtually waltz at fabcbooks.com. And you could buy a crew neck, a t-shirt and uh, like a couple of sets of Roland McCune systematic theology. There you go. There you go. On that note, speaking of Roland McCune's systematic theology, let's talk about Thanksgiving. <laughs> How, how's that for a segue? That was a good segue. <laughs> you could have said like Roland McCune probably ate turkey one time. Yeah. Let's talk about Thanksgiving. Okay, that gets me. That gets me back to our Thanksgiving discussion. So I think it was earlier this week we were like, what are we going to do with the Thanksgivings episode? And this is airing a couple of weeks later than when we're recording it. And uh, we're like, why don't we just go around the table and like, what do you think about when you think about Thanksgiving? So it's like, but not just a complete vague idea, but like what scripture passages do you think of or what prominent spiritual themes do you think of? You know, obviously thankfulness, but are there other ideas that you would uh, incorporate into that idea of Thanksgiving? We're just going to go around and share those. Right away, my mind went like this. Thanksgiving. Pilgrims, pilgrims, Native Americans or indigenous people, however you want to splice that up. And then uh, what did they eat? They ate turkeys. And what sound did turkeys make? They gobble. And so then I started like thinking of passages where people are like eating things. And I wanted to like go down that route as like a, a humorous thing. And I had an idea in mind and then I completely forgot what I was planning to do. So I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, just want, you know, maybe next year we'll talk about gobbling. Like, you know, like the the Christmas. What's your association with that Christmas book? Trees. There are trees in Lord of the Rings. Boom, we're there. That was a good, that was a good segment. Yeah. So, what's your correlation to that passage? Well, they're gobbling up food. And that's a lot a lot of ways that Thanksgiving ties into that. But here is my idea. I I I had a verse that popped into my mind, and and that's I'll read the verses James 1, uh, 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And uh, so kind of two aspects of that verse that I like. And I know what you're going to say. The first one, good gifts and perfect gifts. You're like, that's not Thanksgiving. That's Christmas. <laughs> But 
what would be a reason for us to be thankful and to, to maybe consider what God has given you that you didn't deserve? And James points out, like, every good gift, like, you almost maybe restate it this way, every good thing that you have uh, is yours and given to you because your father knows you needed it, needed it or even in some cases knows that you wanted it and he blessed you in certain ways. And, and so uh, certainly that would be a reason to be thankful of all the good gifts that have come down from our Heavenly Father. But then we learn something about God that we can be very thankful for, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no changing. He never has changed in his character or, or his disposition towards us in Christ. That he, he loves us fully and, and we can, he's always faithful, you know, to, to contrast what we were talking about from that, you know, horrendous, uh, feminist that, you know, God breaks his promises. He actually doesn't, he actually doesn't. And, uh, you know, so he gives us good things and he never changes. And that's just two really great things to be thankful for. Um, and, and just as I thought about that verse, my, my mind went to family and friends and uh, the blessing that they so often are. And so you can be thankful that God has blessed you with a family that loves you and friends that put up with you and uh, all the things in between. So that's, that's where I went in my thoughts. So when you guys suggested the thing about Thanksgiving, my mind went in a lot of different places. One of them was uh, some of the things that I like, like turkey. Man, I can't reproduce this. Like he did this whole thing about gobbling and gobbling up and food and all of that jazz, right? All that jazz. And so then my mind, I mean, my mind first went to Ecclesiastes. I visited a couple Mm. of other areas in the Bible as well as I contemplated further, but I'm going to Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to gobble it up, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God, for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. It's not gobble, but yeah, it's eat. But so. Is that the Tim Little translation? It's horrendous. It's the Thanksgiving translation for the Thanksgivings. Think, okay, can I ask you a question about that? Go ahead. Do you think that that is, and again, I'm you know, this is maybe not a fair way to ask a question because I'm asking a question in a way that reveals what I already think. Do you think that there's more to that, like, and to the one he gives the power to receive, that there's there's more to it than just the physical aspect? Like, it's not just that he allowed you to have it. Like, you could actually have a rich person who is rich, but cannot enjoy the richness that they have. It's not a matter of, like, you know, like, they, they could be even eating this great meal that they have, but they're hating it, you know, type of an idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, previously in verse 10, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. And this also is an enigma. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? 
So when you amass stuff, if you have more and more stuff at Thanksgiving, even I think the Thanksgiving meal can even be an illustration of this. There's very good and delightful things at Thanksgiving time that I don't partake in because there are better things that I like more. For example, cornbread. I like cornbread. Slathering butter on cornbread. Oh yeah, baby, mm. that's good. Honey, good. Mm. Honey, Honey on cornbread. Oh yeah, good oh, stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you're yeah. speaking my love language. <laughs> Horrendous. Okay, so <laughs> the but I mean I don't have cornbread on Thanksgiving typically because there are other things I like even more. Mm. It's like this a multiplication of these goods in abundance that we have, especially on a time at a time like Thanksgiving. So that's not a direct application here. This is probably Solomon speaking, and it states in Kings the abundance which he had, um, the abundant goods and provisions which he had to have every single day to provide First for Kings his household. Four. Right, First Kings four. Um, so, so that's probably more of the idea that's at play there. But still, it illustrates this overwhelming abundance which somebody doesn't does not get to enjoy in contrast to the man in Ecclesiastes 5.18 through 20. And right after Ecclesiastes 5.18 through 20, you have Ecclesiastes 6.1. And it states, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and is common among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. This person has everything. They have riches, they have wealth, they have honor. He has everything. But, the verse continues, Yet God does not give him power to gobble it up okay, to eat of it. But a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity and is an evil affliction. So what is the way? What is the true way? What is the good way? This is the good way in verses 18 through 20. Here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all this labor in which he toils under the sun, all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. You work and you toil. You work day in and day out. You work and you toil day in and day out. And then there are these times when you don't work. Times like Thanksgiving. And what do you do during that time? You enjoy it. You eat and you drink and you have uh, pleasure. And what does God think of that? Well, what does this text say? Verse 19, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his portion, his heritage, and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. Gifts are Christmas, Tim. You can't use gifts. It's a good thing that God has given that you be able to enjoy the blessings of thanksgiving, whether that's with little or with much. Verse 20, he will not dwell unduly. He will not remember. The idea here is remembrance. He will not even think about, remember the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. This is a good life. This is the life that's lived in contentment, not striving to get more, not not desiring greater wealth, but grateful and content, thankful for the blessing that God has given, consuming it as a as a provision from a good God who likes to give good things to his creatures. So this is my text from uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20. I pray it's an encouragement that you would enjoy God's blessing this Thanksgiving. So when I thought about this, uh, this is the verse that came to my mind. And though I don't have a gobbling segue, you did talk about in all things. Uh So this one talks about all things. So 1 Thessalonians 5 says, rejoice always in verse 16. So always means all the time. I think that's hard because there are hard things that we go through. And when the biblical writer wrote this, I don't think he was unaware of those hard things. He was just saying that in all those things, you should pray. 
or you should rejoice. The second, the next verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. So again, you have very expansive language, always without ceasing. And then it says next in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So I would just say, listener, what does everything mean? It means everything. And so that's hard. It's really hard sometimes to give thanks in all things, especially when it's very difficult or it's a trial or it's a challenge you're going through. But through the Spirit and by trusting in God, you are able to do that. And sometimes you need to reach out to a fellow believer or maybe your pastor to get some help with that. At Thanksgiving, though, I think it's perfectly appropriate, actually, to rejoice and to rejoice in that great, wonderful holiday. And so... Hopefully at Thanksgiving time, you can spend some time getting away from all the hustle and bustle and spend some time thanking the Lord for the good and even the difficult trials he's putting in your life to help conform you to Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.